This is episode 207 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like William Shakespeare, our show is supported by our patrons. Unlock bonus episodes and exclusive history content at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. Hi, I'm Nini McKayla, historical costumier, tailor, and author of The Tudor Tailor, Reconstructing 16th Century Dress. Another great method for studying the history of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. In truth, hot drinks were far more popular than cold drinks in the pubs and taverns. And every tavern had a bunch of these red hot pokers waiting in the fireplace to heat these up. And uh, the posset did always have uh, milk in it. Always ale. And then the, the variation was for a fancy one, you would use egg yolks, but that definitely would thicken it into a dessert. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Shakespeare's plays mention several kinds of alcoholic beverages, some of which we still have today, like wine, ale, and beer. But others are more formally situated in the past, making them pretty obscure references outside of niche historical circles that enjoy recreating beverages from antiquity. For example, the Merry Wives of Windsor, Henry VI, and Twelfth Night give us mentions of drinks like sack, posset, canary, and methaglin, all of which are alcoholic drinks, but their substance may not be as recognizable to you today as it was for William Shakespeare. What were these drinks made from? Were they served at pubs or for major holidays? And what did they look like when you actually picked them up to drink them? Our guests this week, Jared and Anastasia Brown, are experts in historical beverages and the owners at Sipsmith.com, as well as Mixellany.com, where they research and write about the history of alcoholic drinks. Today, Jared and Anastasia are taking us back to the 16th century to investigate these obscure drinks and introduce us to the cocktails of Shakespeare's lifetime. Recipients of the 2021 Helen David Life Achievement Award from the Tales of the Cocktail, industry legends Anastasia Miller and Jared Brown are multi-award winning drink historians who have been writing about the drinks industry since 1995. Jared Brown, co-founder and master distiller of Sipsmith Limited, has a few dozen books under his belt and a few hundred articles about drinks, spirits, and how to make them. After 35 years in the publishing industry, Anastasia Miller, director of Mixellani Limited, is finishing her PhD in history on the economic and social history of early modern English brewing and teaches early modern European history at the University of Bristol. Hello, Jared and Anastasia. Welcome to the show. Hi, glad to be here. Wonderful to join you today in such a great subject. Yeah, really great subject. We're really looking forward to this. (laughs) In Romeo and Juliet, the nurse calls for aquavitae. Jared, is aquavitae a kind of whiskey? A lot of people think that aquaviti means whiskey, but actually aquaviti, literally translated from the Latin, means water of life. 
And the first three appearances of it in history that we've discovered called for grain or wine spirit with anise seeds. Then the next grain or wine spirit with anise, caraway, and coriander seeds. And then grain spirit with anise seeds, clove, nutmeg, ginger, cardamom, licorice, and raisin. So, But that one is the one that was called whiskaba, which is the one that everybody thinks means whiskey. But whiskey, in terms of Shakespeare's time, was actually a spiced drink. In Merry Wives of Windsor, the page says, Yet be careful, knight, thou shalt eat a posset tonight at my house. This comes from Act 5, Scene 5. Jared, what exactly is a posset? I've heard that this might be a pudding or it could possibly be a drink. Can you explain what is this person partaking of at the house when they're consuming a posset? A posset meant a number of different things. It was a drink made with milk, ale, and sack wine, sweetened with sugar. A, a thicker, more elegant posset was made with cream, egg yolks, ale, sack, which is sherry, and nutmeg, cinnamon, and breadcrumbs. Which was more of the pudding kind versus the drinking kind. So there were actually two possets. And also, when they talk about eating a posset, it's very easy to curdle milk with the sherry so, or with the, some of these ingredients will certainly curdle it, especially if you're heating it with a um, loggerhead or a red hot poker pulled from the fire, which before they had microwaves, a microwave would warm this mix in a minute. They had this red hot poker from the fire, which would do it in five seconds. <laughs> And in fact, Very the, first, careful. <laughs> the first time you do it, you plunge the poker straight to the bottom of the cup and the liquid inside expands so quickly from the heat that it simply leaves the cup straight into your face, leaving you with an empty cup, a wet face and um, well, a little education. And that lesson learned is if you're going to make a proper faucet as a drink, you actually take the poker and just hold the tip very carefully, and then slowly submerge it in. On a five count, if you want to heat it in five seconds, one, touch the top, two, a little deeper, three, four, five, you've touched the bottom, and it all stays in the cup. This is all from words of experience, trust us. Yes, It sounds sounds like experience, but very good advice on creating our own posset. This almost sounds like what I think of as an eggnog. Very much one of the one of the the antecedents of the eggnog. So was posset always made from cream and like nutmeg and some of these sweeter spices? And and was it like eggnog to only be eaten on special occasions, or was this kind of an everyday drink? It was more yes. of, a, of a specialty drink because even with the ale, the ale and, and milk mix, it was something where where it was a winter thing. It well, definitely wasn't. Well, it, it was an autumn, winter, yeah. and spring thing. Yeah, but especially in England. In, in England, there, there's only about a month of summer, and the rest of the time, it's freezing. Yeah. So, uh, in truth, hot drinks were far more popular than cold drinks yeah. in the pubs and taverns. And every tavern had a bunch of these red-hot pokers waiting in the fireplace to heat these up. And uh, the posset did always have um, milk in it always ale and then the the variation was for a fancy one you would use egg yolks but that definitely would thicken it into a dessert 
but that ale was very different from a modern beer as well. Very much so. And much more in common with a, a sherry or a Madeira, in fact. Well, it was than, heavy. Yeah, it, it was incredibly heavy. Incredibly heavy. It could be very sweet. Yeah. Almost well, the, a molasses character from the old mold. Well, it's definitely a molasses character, but including in the consistency alone, you have to think about the fact that beer took one quarter one quarter malt to eight times the amount of water. When you were making an ale back in Shakespeare's time, it was almost equal parts ale or equal parts water to malt. So you were squeezing the grain to get the water back so you could actually make ale. Again, from experience, Anastasia yes. made, I think, seven variations on an ale from this time period yeah. over Christmas this year. Yeah. The kitchen was a mess. But it smelled good. It did. Yes, it did. <laughs> In Love's Labor's Lost, Byron mentions, quote, nay then, two trays, and if you grow so nice, methaglin, wart, and malmsey, well, run dice, end quote. Anastasia, what is methaglin? And I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing that right, so feel free to correct my pronunciation. Oh, you're, but definitely, is, you're definitely pronouncing it right. But was it, it a is, kind of spirit? Yeah, it was. Actually, there were two different kinds of methaglin. Ooh. Uh, first, first methaglin was more like a mead. It was a hu- fermented honey drink that, was, that used the leftover foam from fermenting ale, which was called barn, and it contained all of the yeasty good stuff that makes makes things ferment. Now, that's still done today in yes. making cachaça, yes. the spirit of Brazil, the rum of Brazil, where yeah. they scoop the foam off the fermentation and use that for the next fermentation. In many other old traditional fermentations, that still happens. But interesting here that they would take it off an ale and put it onto what would be a mead. Yeah. Now that would that would be one version. The other version of methaglin came along a little bit later in the 1500s, which distilled this after it was fermented like a beer, and then they would distill it. In fact, there were professional methaglin distillers around in the late 1500s. It was really it was really kind of a nice shift. But the fun part about the whole drink was was that once you once you got this fermented, you added ginger, sometimes nutmeg, cinnamon, orange peel, sort of spiced the whole thing up. If you wanted it to be clarified, because it was very cloudy, that was because of the barm itself and all, all the spices, you could clarify it by adding egg whites and eggshells and letting everything fall down into that and just top siphon it off. Unless if you just weren't patient enough to leave it for months and months to settle out. Most people were not patient in Shakespeare's time. They wanted immediate results with their drinks. Yeah, it's a long time to wait for a drink. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) In Henry VI Part Two, the rebel leader Cade orders that the sewers of London should, quote, run nothing but claret wine the first year of our reign, end quote. Jared and Anastasia, I throw this question to both or either of you, but why was it significant for the streets to be filled with claret. I think of claret as a kind of wine, but why would this be something he would espouse to do during his reign? We we absolutely love this quote and this question. <laughs> this, this is fabulous. Uh, claret, claret. <laughs> claret is the British term 
for red Bordeaux wine. All red Bordeaux wine. All wines. Bordeaux's and a few other French varietals are all mm, lumped in. Under claret, oh, but mostly they, they can be Blanc also, depending on how good they are. Cer- certainly uh, Rhone, uh, Chateau Neuf, they would just call it claret. claret. And, yeah. and they still do, they to still be do. honest. Yeah. The, the, the one thing about the, the actual passage that's fascinating is is the original text used the words kissing conduit <laughs> or latrine, not sewers. But the uh, but the idea was was that nothing ran through any of the celebrant systems except French wine. Now there's a reason for this. So uh, uh, the the point of that that statement is what they meant was yes, it's going to run with claret. But we're going to pass it through our kidneys first. Yes. And the reason why is is because Henry VI started his reign right around that time. And when he was crowned King of England in 1429, and then the King of France in 1431. So he had the rights to have all of the claret that he could ever pull from France and bring it in. And he wanted to celebrate the fact that he was king. And that was actually documented in Henry VI by Shakespeare just to prove how much he was a French and English king. And how much claret he could piss. <laughs> so what other spirits like rum, for example, would Shakespeare have known about? Would Shakespeare have had rum? No, no. Too he Caribbean for him then. Well, not even that. It was, it was something that wasn't even exist. available. It didn't exist until 16, <clears throat> the 1640s. In so it wasn't even invented. No. No. In, in no. fact, this whole idea that the mojito was invented by Sir Francis Drake or Richard Drake when they were privateers in the Caribbean, a little problem with that because Sir Francis Drake died in 1585 <laughs> and rum didn't exist till about 1640 when yeah. Dutch settlers were kicked out of northeastern Brazil by the Portuguese landed in the Caribbean and began making this new spirit. The other problem is, is all of the spirits that were made in the 1500s, starting in about 1540, 1543, Agua de Caña, all of those were Spanish colonies. So Shakespeare would never had, had touched any of it because, after all, the English and Spanish were at war more times than not. And the only reason they invented this was because the Spanish colonists did not want to pay for importing sherry and brandy from Spain because that's how the Spanish used to make money was off of the colonists wanting home goods. Unlike in England at that time, where not only were the streets running with claret, but also with French brandy. Yeah. The next drink I want to ask you about is one that I enjoyed on my first trip to England. So for me personally, there's an association with England and gin. But I wondered about William Shakespeare. Would he have had gin available in his lifetime? He would have had something like gin. Now, this is something we just discovered recently in a bunch of research I've been doing, is that Aside from spoiler alert, Anastasia (laughs) has just rewritten the entire history of gin. So anything that you've heard about the history of gin 
is not only incorrect, but we've tracked down the person who wrote it in the 1800s. And uh, he didn't get it from anywhere but his imagination. Shame on him. Because the truth of it is, is in Shakespeare's time, elite women who were basically the doctors for a local village, uh, they they were able to afford owning a still, they they gotten acquainted with monks, they'd learned all the fine arts of distillation. Apothecaries in London were also the other people who were making spirits at that time. There were no distillers per se at that time. Women distillers, apothecaries, that was it. What they would make, and what's closest that we've discovered to gin as we know it, are aqua ad croculum, which is also known as surfeit water. What a terrible name. It's a terrible name. Aqua rosa solis which is yet another version, and aqua fructum, which is the most closely allied to what we now know as London dry gin because it's a juniper predominant spirit with peelings, it's uh, fruit peelings, and, and Spanish orange and lemon yeah. peel, yeah. and then spice supported. It's practically a modern gin recipe, yeah. but from the early 1600s. But they were definitely drinking this stuff, but it was called medicinal, but then people were sneaking it like Elizabeth was, and Henry VIII were actually introducing it to court as something to have that was enjoyable, not just medicinal. If you want to see that recipe, we actually republished the book that it appeared in, uh, which is the Distiller of London, published in 1639 by the Worshipful Company of Distillers, the Distilling Guild in the UK, which was founded just the year before in 1638. And uh, the trouble was these this book was written in two different codes. It took Anastasia <laughs> 18 months to crack these codes. It was fun. (laughs) It was fun. So we've taken it decoded, and you can find Distiller of London on Amazon and other places these days, um, with all proceeds going to drinks industry charity. We'll definitely link to where you can check out that book and see the recipe for sure. That sounds exciting. So make sure you check out the show notes to find that. Now, we know several of these alcoholic drinks existed for Shakespeare's lifetime, but how prolific were they among the general population? You mentioned that gin was more medicinal than it was recreational, probably for Shakespeare's lifetime. But we also know about some historical issues that could have impacted the making of alcoholic beverages. I think about corn being hard to get in England in the late 16th century, for example. And since many of the alcoholic beverages we enjoy today, like whiskey, are made from corn, I wonder if there were economic or agricultural forces at work during Shakespeare's lifetime that might have impacted the production or availability of these spirits versus other spirits for his lifetime. Oh, UK, you start off by correcting the difference between corn and corn. You start there and I'll keep going. Well, no, there's no difference between corn and corn. There's but no there is between a corn difference corn. between corn and maize. Yes. Now, maize was this phenomenal new world crop that was discovered when Columbus sailed over and he made it as far as Cuba. Columbus, of course, never actually contacted America. Ever. But he brought back these seeds of maize as it was named in in the Caribbean. And it grew over here, and they did grow maize, but 
The word it was corn, never used in whiskey making over here, only in America. The word corn, <laughs> if you trace back to the Baltic origins of the Saxons, there you'll find back in antiquity they used the word corn, which meant grain yes. of any kind. So the the seed of any grass, and by the way, sweet corn is actually a, a variety of grass. And that's just the seed off of it, as is wheat, as are oats and rye and barley, etc. But cetera. spirits in general in this country were made either from wine, because they had, thank you, Henry VI, they had plenty of wine to experiment with. So they could make spirits of wine of anything and add, add ingredients to it and make it into wine. The other thing they had that they used a lot of was barley, because barley was the cheapest of all the grains. wheat. Oats, barley. Barley was cheap. Barley was easy to germinate, malt, and make into something good. So consequently, that was the other spirit that was introduced in the 1500s. But also you'd plant your wheat in the autumn and let it come up over winter. Winter wheat is the only wheat that has a great carbohydrate content. Yeah, but, but barley, on the other hand, can be planted in either March or May and harvested in July. Exactly. So you can have an early crop that's an abundant, cheap crop to produce, and that's why it was used. But there was a problem with all of this. It was an environmental problem. In the 1500s, they had a lot of harvest failures. They actually had a famine in 1629, and the situation really didn't improve until the 1680s when William of Orange arrived. Every other year, there was a, there was a harvest failure. Every other year, there was another potential for famine. So aside from the elite who could afford these lovely spirits made with, with grain, because they became classy, actually. It was something they imported from Germany, believe it or not. The Germans had started drinking grain spirits and introduced the English to grain spirits instead of wine spirits because they were cheaper. But when you don't have any grain, guess what? You don't have any ale, you don't have any beer, so consequently, you don't have any grain spirit. Well, that would make sense. Yeah. 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 So I know we would love to explore some of the history you've shared with us today, including examining some of these particular drinks and where they came from and the different kinds that would have been available to William Shakespeare. What are some of your favorite books, in addition to The Distillers of London and, of course, The History of Gin, that you can recommend we use to learn more? For Shakespeare, I've got to say one book that, that came out back in the early 70s by this one historian, Cindy Renfrew, A Sit Through Time, goes through, she went through every single advice manual you could get your hands on. She went through every single document she could find at that time, which now we, of course, have gone back even further. But at least we're talking late 1500s I, to 1600s. I thought you were going to recommend C.N. Wilson. Well, C.N. Wills is the other one because she did food and drink in Britain from the Stone Age to recent times. And she details how people were able to, to actually produce things they, 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 they were consuming and why they were consuming as much drink as they were, which is really another great fascination. So those are the two books I'd have to say. C.N. Wilson's Food and Drink in Britain from the Stone Age to Recent Times, and Cindy Renfrew's A Sip Through Time. 
We will link to these recommendations as well as the other books that Jared and Anastasia have recommended for you today in the show notes for today's episode. So hang on for the URL where to find all of that. Jared and Anastasia, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Then I would absolutely bring Tim O'Shea's timeless book, How to Survive on a Desert Island. (laughs) Because I'd like to live long enough to read the collected works of Shakespeare and the Bible. Or if we're talking true hypotheticals, I honestly don't need any of them. Just give me an infinite number of typewriters and an infinite number of monkeys and they'll come up with both. And hopefully they'll also get into a bit of vomit on the side. Okay, see, I'm I'm a little more a little more sedate than he is. I would actually on a desert a deserted island. I would love to have either a couple a copy of Charles Doty's Arabia Deserta, which is about oh about a four inch thick volume uh, about the history of Arabia, just to dry my brain out. Oh, or, come on. You're sitting or, in the sand. Yeah, do you really want to read about yes, sand? Yes, I do, or, because then I can twinkle my toes the in the water. the words of Dashiell Hammett? No, no. At that point, I would also, which is my favorite book, believe it or not, is The Seven Pillars of Wisdom by Lawrence of Arabia. Another hefty tome, but something I could just sit there and go, oh, I'm having a lovely day, but my feet are in the water. Okay, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm really good. In other words, he's funnier than I am. I think you've picked practical and and useful approaches to your desert island time there. And I think I heard you mention that you are reworking the history of gin. Is that your latest project? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Oh, actually, one of the things we're working on right now that we're very excited about is the autobiography of the man who created the espresso martini, Dick Bradsell. The whole story of his life, we're having a great time with that because yeah. he was one of the most colorful characters that you could encounter this side of Samuel Pepys. Uh, it, it, it's one of, those, one of those moments where his widow asked us when he passed away if we would possibly work on a book. And she handed us two pieces of luggage with hand scribbled notes and said, do you think you can do anything with this? So we are having the ultimate joy. Not just scribbled, but all hand-illustrated. Yeah. And il- hand-illustrated <laughs> on top of all. So it's been, it's been wonderful doing that, which is, which is a nice relief after revising the entire history of gin, which I'm waiting for this, this one academic journal to clear through peer review. But it, it, it's going to change people's minds about what they think. Well, that sounds like exciting stuff coming from you guys. And you can follow Jared and Anastasia's work at sipsmith.com. And we'll put links to their work. And so you can keep up with the history of gin as well as check out their latest project all from there. Jared and Anastasia, thank you so much for being here this week and taking us through the history of cocktails in Shakespeare's lifetime. This has been a really fun conversation. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. you. It's been wonderful talking with you. And cheers. cheers. Absolutely. Cheers. If you enjoy our show today, please be sure to leave us a comment and rating on your favorite podcast platform and share the show with someone you think might enjoy learning something new about Shakespeare. 
If you want to see more information on our guests today, as well as all the resources they recommend you use to learn more, find all these things in the show notes at CassidyCash.com slash episode 207. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP207. Just like Shakespeare, our show is powered by our patrons. If you enjoy learning about the life of William Shakespeare along with us here each week, then consider becoming a patron. Patrons get access to detailed show notes and bonus episodes. Learn more and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.